Hi, I'm Brett Johnson, former United States Most Wanted cyber criminal, now good guy. That's right, good guy. Or as the United States Secret Service put it, the original internet godfather. Well, well Brett, how did you get that title? Well, don't worry, I'll tell you how I get that title. Hell, I do it every single week. 39 felonies, a place on the United States most wanted list. I escaped from prison. Did you really escape from prison? Yes, I really did escape from prison. And I also built and ran the first organized cybercrime community. It was called Shadow Crew. It was a precursor of today's darknet and darknet markets. It laid the foundation for the way modern cybercrime channels operate today. And you better believe your ass that will land you in prison, deservedly so. Now, look. There's a whole story behind all that. We don't have time for that today because today, right now, it's time for the Brett Johnson Show. Today's episode, the evolution of the dark web. When we come back. All right, so we are back to the Brett Johnson Show. Today's episode, the evolution of the dark web. So how have things changed since I started Shadow Crew, since Shadow Crew got busted. I mean, how have things, is, how have things evolved over those years? Shadow Crew was busted in uh, October 26, 2004. We're now in the year 2022, 18 years later. You can bet that things have not remained stagnant during those 18 years. So that's today's episode, The Evolution of the Dark Web. Before we, well, as you might have noticed... I changed my hat. Yes, it did. I, it was getting to the point. My oldest stepson looked at me and said, you better put on your Columbia hat if you're going to, you know, go and record an episode. And I was like, well, shit, Columbia is not paying me anything to advertise. I like my Columbia hat, but I don't want to be known for it. It's not the Columbia podcast. It's the Brett Johnson podcast or YouTube channel, whatever you want to call it. So I went to the store. I bought me a whole slew of college hats. So every day of an episode, I'm going to have a different college hat on. I'm like, that's what I'll do. And every now and then, I may throw back on my Columbia hat if I feel inclined to. And the reason I'm doing that, I plan on getting me some show swag. I, I don't know if anybody will buy it, but I'd like to have me, just me, I'd like to have me a nice little hat like this with the emblem, you know, the, the Brett Johnson Show logo right dead center in it. Boy, I think that'd be pretty. So I'm going to get that. Don't know when, because you know I looked around for some hats. First of all, Brett's got a big-ass head. I mean, I got a big head. And you would think, with a head as big as mine, that it would house a very large brain. And, you know, I may not have been caught and went to prison, or maybe the brain was so big that I would have realized that crime does not pay. But obviously... The big head does not really correlate to there being a big brain in there because, well, I did commit crime and, well, I did go to prison. So there's some dumbass in here somewhere. So I just thought I would throw that out. But yeah, I was, I was looking at hats to order because I, I wanted just a hat for myself. And hell, a lot of these sites, they want you to order 100 hats. And I'm like, well, shit, I don't even know if they fit me to begin with because I have trouble getting fit on these baseball hat things that I wear. So I'm like, ah, I'll figure it out at some point. Anybody got any pointers or suggestions, feel free to let me know because believe you me, I need all the help that I can get. Now, of course, as I say most every episode now, I do read the comments. 
This episode today, the evolution of the dark web, I had a guy or someone in the comment section on the YouTube channel, they, they asked me to talk about how the dark web had evolved over the years. And I read that and I was like, damn, that's, a, that's actually a pretty good show idea. Let's do it. So if you guys got any suggestions, throw them out there. I mean, hell, if it's a good suggestion, I'll do it. If it's not a good suggestion, I might do it anyway. That's just the way that I am. So this is the evolution of the dark web. I had another gentleman that asked me to do um, a show on money laundering. So I've got that in there. I've asked, there's been a couple other shows, suggestions, crypto, stuff like that. And I'm going get, to get all of that in there. So just bear with me. It'll be in the rotation. I had one gentleman that, uh, that asked me to um, go through an account takeover, how a criminal will actually scam you. And he wanted it to be in, you know, like a dialogue, like, you know, your role playing. Maybe I'll do the role playing, maybe not. And the reason I'm hesitant on that is if you tend to go by one type of script and criminals have many different types of scripts. I know I used to have a lot of different scripts. If you go by one specific type of script, a lot of listeners adopt that as if it's not this, it's not a scam. So I'm not really down with it. It's like when I'm talking about, if I talk about a company, a specific company having a problem, a lot of the other companies that are out there in that vertical or similar verticals, they tend, a lot of fraud analysts, they sit there and say, oh, well, he's just talking about this company. He ain't talking about us. No, I'm talking about your asses too. You just don't know it yet. I just not called you out because I got a better example of this other one. But I'll guarantee if you're not being hit, you're gonna be hit. That's not that question of if, it's that question of when, and often it's that it's the thing of, well, it's not really your first time, is it? Yeah. So I do read comments. Somebody, I've had a few suggestions. People have been asking me to start up a Discord. I am not averse to starting up a Discord, all right? But I, I simply don't know if I have the time to manage it properly. So what I have to do right now, I'm, I'm working on the website. Hopefully I have that up the next few days. I'm flying to Tampa tomorrow to be on the Concrete Podcast. But hopefully I'll have the website up in a couple of days. And I also have this show translated over to audio and listed on Spotify, on Apple iTunes, on all the other major podcast channels as well, because I've had a lot of people asking me to please do that. So, hey, it's coming. Just bear with me. Yes, I know. I've, this is the 18th, 19th episode, whatever the hell it is. Brett, you should have done it before now. Yeah, you know, I know that. <laughs> I know that. But this show don't make me no money. So I got, I got shit I got to do that makes me money. Legal shit. So, you know, I try, I try my best to, to do all this other stuff. And I'll get there, I promise you. Discord, I'll look into it. If I think I can actually do it and do it justice, I promise you I will get that Discord up. But I, I will have some way, so instead of having to come to YouTube, that people can communicate, share information, things like that. I will have that. I don't know if it's going to be Discord or not. It may be if I can manage it properly. Okay? So moving right along, the only other thing is I've had a few people, both on the Lex Fridman show, Fridman Freeman, whatever it is, I've had a few people on that. I've had a, I think I've even had a couple people on on my YouTube channel that that's made comments. Most of them, you guys are. I'm going to tell you, you guys on my channel, 
you're outstanding. Uh, most of the comments there are are very humbling comments, and I truly appreciate them. And, and it's um, I've got a lot of people that offer very good suggestions that um, send me good wishes and everything like that. And I truly appreciate that. Thank you so much. Truly, truly, I appreciate that. I've had a few people that have made comments of, oh, he should have never gotten out of prison. Oh, you know, he uh, prison ain't like that. Prison is like this. I love it. I absolutely love it when somebody's never been locked up and they're going to tell you what prison is like. <laughs> okay, okay, do you. I remember when I got out of prison, 2011, I was dating this woman. Uh, she was an underwater archaeologist, and she had a thing, well, other than for me, she, she had a thing. She had a thing for uh, um, helping felons. Uh, she had, her cause was prison. Specifically, her cause was prison rape. She was, she was real big on that. And I, you know, she, she, she would ask you, you never had anything happen to you? I was like, no, I never had anything happen. And she, and she always talked about it, always talked about it. Finally, one day, because I don't, I talk some about my prison experience, but you guys got to realize I got some, I got PTSD throughout my entire life. <laughs> but certainly there's some PTSD with some of that prison stuff. And I, I do share things, but sometimes it takes me a while to talk about that. So she kept on going, I guess we dated four or five months, something like that. But she kept going on about her cause, you know, yo, rape in prison is horrible. Rape in prison is horrible. And I, one day I looked at her, I was like, look, I said, honestly, yes, you do have prison rape. I never saw it. Tell you, in my experience, especially with the, at the security level that I was locked up, unless you want to have sex with another man, you ain't going to have sex with another man. You know, both people are wanting it. Well, I told her that, and she flew mad at me. That's not the way that is. I was like, shit, <laughs> I just got my ass out. I can tell you that's the way that shit is. Oh, no, no, it's, it had happened where you were, too. You just don't know about it. And I was like, shit, everybody on the compound knows everything. So don't tell me what I don't know and what I don't. I was there. You weren't. So I, I love it when people, when people talk about something that they don't understand, that they don't know about, that they have literally no frame of reference about. Should I have gotten life in prison? No, I shouldn't have. Was my, were my crimes serious? Yes, they were. Am I remorseful for my crimes? Yes, I am. I, had, I have had people that comment on that shit. You got to figure, guys, I've been, I've been out since 2011. I've been dealing, coming to terms with my crime and my life even before that. So while the people who are just meeting me now on these YouTube channels or on Fredmare or these other podcasts that I'm on or interviews, you know, my, my remorse has been maturing and growing for all these years. So the people who are saying this kind of stuff are not aware of that. They don't appreciate that. And they think that, that I should show remorse in the way that they want me to show remorse. Life doesn't work like that. Everyone is different. All right. But I am remorseful now. We're going to carry right the hell on. We're going to carry right, because we got a show to talk about today. The evolution of the dark web. So how has the dark web changed? And I want you to understand before we dive into that, this shit just ain't about the dark web. We're going to talk about that, that, that. Let's just dive in and get to it. All right. So 
it all kind of well, it starts with IRC, but it really gets its its real thrust with Shadow Crew. All right, so I guess the best way is just to dive into how all this shit started. So I got married. I, I faked a car accident to get married, to get the money to get married. Moved from Hazard, Kentucky to Lexington, Kentucky, to go to school for an English major and a theater major. My wife, Susan, at that point in time, she was a music major. If I've not told you guys, I'm going to tell you now, I get the worst parts of my mom and my dad. My mom was a criminal in the family. My dad was the guy who loved my mom so much that he became the enabler of the family. I had to comment today that <laughs> that uh, the guy, had somebody had just listened to the Friedman show, and he made the comment of, you know, damn, this guy, most of his life, bounced from one narcissistic woman to another. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. My choice. All right, like I was wearing a big sign. Hey, I'm here. Come get me. But you're, you're right. So I got married. My mom was a criminal. My dad was the enabler because he was scared of losing my mom. He would co-sign on to whatever she wanted to do. I get the worst parts from my mom and my dad. My mom, the criminal mindset. My dad, that fear of the people that I love leaving me. Now, that, that really is kind of what defines me as a person for many, many years, okay? So faked a car accident to get the insurance money, to get married, to move from Hazard, Kentucky to Lexington, Kentucky. And I was committing crime throughout. I mean, I had a job at Lexmark. When I had a job, I wasn't committing fraud because I was too damn tired to do that. I had the uh, um, 60 hour a week job, 18 hour class load. I was doing all the cooking and cleaning in the house. It was not a good marriage either for me or for my wife. I was married to her for nine years. And during those nine years, I lied to her every single day. Took her three years to find out what I did for a living, that I was a criminal. The next six years were me saying, I've stopped. I will stop. I'm going to stop. Hey, just a little while longer until finally it became, you like spending the money, don't you? She finally figured out I wasn't about to stop. So she leaves me. And, and when I say she leaves me, I don't think I went into that. She cheated on me. Um, she knew that. I think that she knew that was the only way that I would end that marriage. And I did. That would certainly get my attention because I grew up with a mother that cheated on my father all the time. So she, she cheated on me. I found out about it. And we broke up. We ultimately got divorced. Um, the way it starts is I faked the car accident to get the money to go to university at, in Lexington, Kentucky, University of Kentucky. And I was doing, before I started internet fraud, because I quit the job at Lexmark, I was doing other types of fraud, telemarketing fraud, um, charity fraud. I was uh, uh, running uh, bad checks across town. I was... Um, I mean, there was a host of things that I was doing that were illegal, okay? A couple of break-ins, things like that. So I was doing illegal stuff. Make no mistake, I was doing illegal stuff until I find eBay. And I liked eBay a whole shitload. I really did. I mean, I, I, I got hooked on eBay almost immediately. I would just, you know, I didn't have any money really, but I would spend a lot of time on the site. And I was like, man, there's got to be some damn way to make money on eBay. So what happens is, is I get a lot of 
of my initial inspiration from Bill O'Reilly, an Inside Edition. No, not inspiration about sexually harassing women like Bill the pervert did, but he was the host of Inside Edition. And he had these, it was a 30 minute kind of news tabloid thing. And the, the first inspiration that I got, they had a show on Beanie Babies. These, if anyone, no one knows what they are, they're Thai Beanie Babies. Back in the mid to late 90s, they were the high dollar collectible. People put their, their savings or investments in it. I mean, they plan to retire, pay for their kids' college for this bullshit and everything else. The one that they were profiling on Inside Edition was called Peanut the Royal Blue Elephant, selling for $1,500. I'm sitting there watching the show like, shit, I need to find me a peanut. So I skipped class the next day, go around all the Hallmark stores looking for peanut, can't find his ass. I was pretty naive thinking you could find him to begin with. After three or four hours, I'm like, dipshit, he's not in the shops. His ass is on eBay for $1,500. So here I am, I'm at the shop and I'm like, well, they've got these little gray Beanie Baby elephants for $8. And the only difference was, was the color of the elephant and the tag mentioned the name of that elephant, which wasn't Peanut. That was really the only difference. So I looked at that and I was like, okay. So buy a gray Beanie Baby, Baby elephant for $8. Stopped by Kroger on the way home, picked up a couple of packs of blue rip dye. Go home and try to dye the little guy. That was a nightmare. Turns out they're made out of polyester. They don't hold dye very well. You get them out of the bath. They look like they've got the mange. Now, here's the thing. I ripped the lady off of $1,500 on that. And the way that happens is, and I, I've spoken about this before, but the way that happens is, is a lot of the more successful, more experienced cyber criminals, we become good social engineers at a very young age in order to survive our environment. I became a social engineer when I was very young because the adults around me were not only toxic, but abusive. And you had to know what the shit was going on. You had to be able to read them almost immediately. You had to be able to try to manipulate them almost immediately. So I became a social engineer at a very young age. What you see with a lot of cyber criminals is they use those tools that they had to you know, build as children when they become adults. And when I became an adult, I chose to use that tool to victimize others. So what happens is I've got this mangy looking beanie baby. I find a picture of a real one online, post it. Lady thinks I has to have the real thing. She wins the bid. As soon as she wins the bid, social engineering kicks in. I want to put her on the defensive, not me. So I send her a message. Message is, hey, lady, you know, We've never done any business before. So, uh, you know, what I need you to do, I don't know if I can trust you. I don't know if I can trust you. I don't even know who you are. So what I need you to do, go down to the U.S. Postal Service, pick up a couple of money orders totaling, uh, you know, $1,500, send them to me. Now, 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 they're issued by the United States government. They protect me. They protect you. They protect us. So send me those money orders once I get them. I'll send you your elephant. Now, she believed that bullshit. So she sends me the money orders. I cash them out, send her this thing in the mail. Now, I did that under my own name. So I immediately get a phone call. This is not what I ordered. My response, lady, you ordered a blue elephant. I sent you a blue-ish elephant. That's what you got.
Now, what happens is, is at the same time, and I've told the story a lot, you're going to hear the story more than once. That is the first lesson of cybercrime that I learned. It's also the first lesson of cybercrime that a lot of cyber criminals learn. That being that if you delay a victim long enough, you just keep putting them off. A lot of them get so exasperated, they throw their hands in the air, walk away, and you don't hear from them again. And guess what? They don't complain to law enforcement. Same thing today. A lot of victims throw their hands in the air, walk away. None of them, whether individuals or organizations, complain to law enforcement. When you do that, when you don't file a report, what happens? That tells somebody like me that I got away with it, that it was profitable, that there were no consequences. And I keep going. Well, while I did that, that was a very unsophisticated crime that I committed. While I did that under my own name, I got away with it. I kept going and I got better at understanding how online fraud and online crime should be conducted. Got to where I was selling pirated software. Pirated software leads into mod chips. Actual chips that you solder on the circuit boards of video game systems, cable boxes, turn on all the stations, what have you. Finally, I'm programming satellite DSS cards, 18-inch RCA satellite systems like you buy. You can pull the card out, program it, turn on all the channels, all the pay-per-view. Started doing that. Canadian judge rules that, hey, it's legal for my citizens to pirate those RCA signals. Now, this dipshit judge, and I'm sorry, but that's what it is. This dipshit, he was suffering, he was suffering from, from what I like to call FIS, fucking idiot syndrome. So this judge who was suffering from FIS, he actually says, he rules that since RCA isn't selling the systems in Canada, that Canadian citizens can pirate those signals. Idiot. <laughs> I mean, stupid. So what happens is, and it, it, a lot of crimes happen this way, a lot of crimes are based on some ruling, some lack of security, some misstep, some, some move of desperation on the part of a government or an institution or a company to try to make things better or try to help. And when that happens, criminals come in and hit it as hard as they can. So what happens is when the judge rules this, little cottage industry pops up in the United States. You go down to Best Buy, buy the system for $100, take it out of the parking lot, open it up, pull the system out, pull the card out, throw the system away, program the card, ship it to Canada, $500 a pop. Started doing that, making a lot of money. Had so much money and so many orders, could not fill all the orders. That criminal mindset of mine kicks in pretty quickly. Why do I need to fill any of the orders? They're in Canada. I'm down here. Who the hell are they going to complain to? Nobody. So I didn't fill any orders, stole even more money, got worried about how much was coming in. Really worried. I was thinking, well, shit, man, I'm doing this, you know, I'm cashing out under my name because I got to have a bank account to do that. I was actually having people send money in through PayPal, which PayPal in its, in its opening days, oh my God, you talk about wide open to fraudsters. But after a while, PayPal locks that shit down. So, and, and PayPal locked it down very effectively for both, you know, legal people and for criminals like myself. It got to the point where PayPal had this thing that if you hit $1,500, they would lock your account 
whether it were a legal account or an illegal account. And they would require verification. They would want you to send in a copy of your driver's license, copy of the payment instrument, proof of address. So what, what they would do with criminals, it was actually cooler than shit. Remember that first lesson of cybercrime? If you delay a victim long enough, they'll throw their hands up in the air, walk away, and you won't hear from them again. Turns out that that rule also applies to criminals. If you delay a criminal long enough, you just keep putting them off. A lot of them get so exasperated, they throw their hands in the air, walk away. You don't hear from them again. And guess what? They can't complain to law enforcement. So PayPal's answer for a lot of crime was if the account were suspicious, if they knew it was a fucked up account, they would lock the account when it hit $1,500. They locked everyone's account when it hit $1,500 of transfers or money coming in or what have you. So they would lock the account. For a suspicious account, they wouldn't send an email out. They wouldn't do anything. They'd wait for the criminal to contact PayPal by email, by phone. So you'd contact PayPal. They'd say, oh, yeah, we need you to, hey, why don't you send us uh, a copy of driver's license, copy of the payment instrument, you know, or bank statement, and uh, proof of address. Soon as we get that, we'll unlock your account. You'll be good to go. Oh, yeah, just, just fax it in to us. That's all you got to do. So as a criminal, you'd fabricate the items, fax it into PayPal, expecting your account to be unlocked. Guess what? Nothing. PayPal, they wouldn't unlock it. You'd sit there about two more weeks waiting for them to unlock the friggin' account. Then you'd email PayPal or you'd call them. Why isn't my account unlocked? And what would PayPal say? Oh, yeah, we need you to, uh, if you don't mind, uh, why don't you uh, fax us in a copy of driver's license, bank statement or payment instrument, and uh, proof of address. And you'd say, what? I just did that. Oh, you did? Huh. Well, huh. We don't got it. We need you to send it in again. So being the idiot criminal that you are, you'd do that shit again. Send it in to them. And then another two weeks would go by and the exact same bullshit would happen again. You'd call PayPal by this time because you're getting upset. You need your freaking money. As a criminal, you need your money. Hey, man, when's my cat going to be unlocked? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We need you to, uh, you don't mind if you could... Uh, Send us a copy of our driver's license, <laughs> proof of address, <laughs> and a bank statement or payment instrument. We'll take care of you. And you would, by this point in time, you start to get the hint. Finally, most as most victims would do back then, most criminals would do the same thing. Criminals would throw their hands up in the air, exasperated, walk away. PayPal would never hear from them again. And they couldn't complain to law enforcement, but what they could do is they could co go back and tell their criminal compadres that, hey, PayPal is full of shit. You ain't never going to get your money out of there. And that caused a lot of criminals to stop using PayPal and to look elsewhere. Delayed payment. Ha! Huh? Criminal tip of the day. If you can delay paying out a criminal, refund fraud, fintech services, whatever, I promise you, he goes back and he tells his buddies he's much more reticent to use you in the future. Everything else. They hate that shit. I hated that shit. So, yeah. So, yeah, I got worried about I was I was selling these ripping people off on satellite DSS cards, worried about how much money was coming in. Thought I was going to be looked at for money laundering. 
started to look for a driver's license, fake driver's license, so I could use that to open up a bank account, funnel the money through the bank account, cash out through the ATM. No idea where to get a fake ID. I mean, not a friggin' clue. So I got online, looked around, thought I found a guy, sent him $200, sent him a picture. Dude rips me off. And I got pissed. I mean, I, I'm still... I'm still angry about that today, as you know, as most victims are still angry about being ripped off years later. Yes, criminals can be victims too. They deserve it. We deserved it. They absolutely did. But what happens is, you see, before that happened, the only real avenue, now, now we're getting into this evolution of the dark web, the only real avenue before that was an IRC chat session, this internet relay chat, this rolling chat board where you had no idea who you were talking to. If the person who was, who was talking knew what they were talking about, if it was the same person that was doing that, you didn't know if you were talking to a criminal or a cop, you didn't know if someone had a product or service, if they had the product or service, if the product or service worked, or if they were just trying to rip you off because everyone there was a criminal. What happens is, is when I'm ripped off on that driver's license, the ultimate result are three websites, Counterfeit Library, Shadow Crew, and Carter Planet. All right, so Counterfeit Library and Shadow Crew, I built those forums, ran those forums, okay? I'm the head of that bullshit. Me and two other guys started up Counterfeit Library. I, won't, I, don't, uh, I don't even know one of the real names right now, still today, 20 years later. But they went by the screen names of Beelzebub out of Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, Mr. X out of Los Angeles. Now, we built that, those counterfeit library forums from scratch all the way up to it being the place that cyber criminals went. What happened now, now Shadow Crew comes from counterfeit library. We were starting to get hit with Joe Job attacks, DDoS attacks, things like that. We transitioned over to Shadow Crew. So Shadow Crew and Counterfeit Library give a trust mechanism that criminals can use. Carter Planet, started by Dmitry Golubov, a Ukrainian national. He's, I think he's part of parliament even today right now in the Ukraine. Vladimir Putin probably kill his ass if Vladimir Putin wins the war in Ukraine, which is, let's be honest, is becoming daily more and more questionable. I don't know how the hell. I mean, I love the shit out of John Wayne Zelensky, Vladimir John Wayne Zelensky. I don't know what his middle name is, but I'm going to call him John Wayne because that dude got shit going on. But, you know, if, if I don't know how the hell Russia is losing that war, but I'm kind of glad they are. I'm kind of glad they are. You know, I, you start shit, you deserve whatever you get. That's my thought on that. I've never been a fan of Russia at all, uh, a lot of cyber criminals are both in the Ukraine and in Russia. Both Ukraine and Russia harbor a lot of those cyber criminals. The, the genesis of credit card theft as we know it today starts in the Ukraine. It does not start in Russia. It starts in the Ukraine with people like Dmitry Golovov, Roman Vega, associates of mine, close associates of mine. They're the guys who started modern-day credit card theft, and they partnered with Shadow Crew in order to basically have a cash out mechanism because they weren't able to cash out at that point in time. Refer to my show on the three necessities of cybercrime, which kind of explains that. Okay, so 
I started Counterfeit Library Shadow Crew. Shadow Crew solves the problem that IRC had, that trust problem. You could not trust anyone or any interaction that was going on on IRC. And the way that Shadow Crew and Counterfeit Library, specifically Shadow Crew, solved that issue is by establishing a trust mechanism with cyber criminals. Now you had a large communication channel in the form of a forum type structure where individuals from different time zones could reference conversations days, weeks, months old. You knew, but you could ask questions. You could learn from those conversations. You could engage in those conversations, reference them from, you know, years, years old sometimes. You knew by looking at someone's screen name what the skill level of that individual was. If you could trust that individual, if you could network with that individual, if you could learn from that individual. We had vouching systems in place, review systems in place, escrow systems in place, all with a singular purpose of establishing trust with one criminal and, and another where they would never meet each other, not know what each other looked like, not know each other's real name. They would only know a screen name. That redefines cybercrime as we know it because you if you and you've seen the episode about the three necessities because when it boils down to cybercrime cybercrime is broken down into three parts successful cybercrime gathering data committing crime cashing out all three things work in conjunction one single criminal cannot do all three things so you have to work with other criminals to do that you have to be able to trust those criminals so that is the first consider IRC as the first the first main evolution from that, the first problem that was solved, the big problem was the trust problem. So you've got that implemented, all right? Now, as we know, Shadow Crew goes on to make the front cover of Forbes, August 2004. October 26, 2004, the United States Secret Service arrest 33 people, six countries, six hours. I was the only guy publicly mentioned at the time of getting away. There were a few other individuals that got away from that bust. Now that is the start. Shadow Crew is the precursor of today's dark web, dark web markets. That's one of the major changes of the dynamics of cybercrime is that institution of that type of channel. Now I go to work for Secret Service brings me in as an informant and a paid consultant or paid informant and a consultant, whatever the hell you want to call it. They, they pay me to round up people and to teach them the dynamics of online crime. While I'm working there, we get a memo. And the memo is about Tor, the onion router. You can find today on Tor Project. I think it's torproject.org is where you download that. So Tor is the next big evolution in cybercrime or evolution in the dark web. It's actually the genesis of this stuff, all right? So the U.S. Navy starts Tor, the onion router. The idea of, of your IP, your real physical IP being wrapped and wrapped and wrapped upon layers like an onion of encrypted other types of IPs. That's a very, very, very low level description of this stuff. All right. But that's what happens. And they did that initially developed by the United States Navy today. Even today, most funding for TOR comes from the United States government. Hmm. Yes, it does. One might, I saw a very astute individual point out that, you know, probably the government owns most of the nodes that tour traffic's going through. Let's just say I would not disagree 
with that. If you control the nodes, you can pretty much see where people are coming from when they sign on to tour. All right. So we got a memo while I'm, while I'm working for the United States Secret Service that warns the agents about tour. Hey, you guys need to watch out for this shit. It's going to be real bad. So none of us have been on tour at that point. As soon as we get the memo, we download the browser, go to visit tour, completely unusable. Completely unusable. You'd try to surf a, a service website with it. Back then, there were no dark websites. So you'd try to surf a surface website, and it would take minutes, minutes for that site to load. So it was completely un unusable because there simply weren't many users. But somebody forgot to mention to the United States Navy. So what happens is, is they develop it, then it goes open source. They release it. The EFF uh, starts to adopt it. Some other uh, uh, online sources start to adopt it and use it and, and make it better and work on it and everything else. So somebody forgot to tell all these people that the first adoptees to tech, if the tech can be used to remain anonymous or to launder money, that the first adoptees are criminals. That's a fact. Just look at the history of beepers. Just saying. So criminals started more and more trying to use Tor, which when it first really hits, pretty much for the first few years, it's unusable because there aren't enough people that are using it, okay? Now, what happens is, of course we know, things remain kind of static until two things actually happen. Silk Road or the Tor browser. Let's say the Tor browser slash Silk Road and cryptocurrency. The Tor browser allows users to remain anonymous as long as they know how to properly use it which is a huge caveat. You know, it's not difficult. I, it's, it, it's interesting. I had, I had somebody uh, comment on the channel, you know, that I alluded to that on Fridman's episode, but I didn't explain it. I'm not really going to go in to explain it, but there are some stupid ass shit that you can do. You know, are you downloading shit through Tor? If you are, it's your real IPs exposed. Are you visiting surface websites at the same time that you're surfing the dark web? If you are, your real IP is exposed. Does the government own most of the nodes? If they do, your real IP might be exposed. So there's all kinds of stuff that you have. To, do you have Java on? Like it used to be that Java was not turned on on Tor on purpose. Then a few years ago, I guess this is probably 2013, 2014, there was an instance where the Tor upgrade was available and it, it automatically turned on Java. So even if you had already had Tor installed, when you went to upgrade it to the newest version, Java was turned on. Now there's some, there's some to say that that was done on purpose so that the feds could figure out where the hell people was. I will not, uh, let's just say I wouldn't disagree with that. All right, let's just say I would not disagree with that. So, but that's that's Tor, okay? Ross Albrick comes up and he starts this site called Silk Road, which is the next bit between crypto and Silk Road, and they go hand in hand. Between crypto and Silk Road, that is the next redefining characteristic of the way 
let's call it the dark web, but we're talking about cybercrime environments is actually what we're talking about today, all right? Because the dark web is more than just criminal activity. So we're talking about cybercrime environments. I'm referring to it as the dark web because most lay people think of the dark web as that, but the dark web is actually full of shit that's not necessarily criminal as well. New York Times has got a site on there. There's whistleblower sites on there. There's all kinds of legal stuff on there too. But we're talking about criminal activity today. So the next big evolution, you've got Shadow Crew, you've got Tor, you've got cryptocurrency, which is established by Satoshi Nakamoto. For Bitcoin, the precursors to Satoshi's Bitcoin are e-gold, Liberty Reserve. I know people out there is going to take exception to that, but the precursors to cryptocurrency are e-gold, Liberty Reserve. E-Gold started by a doctor in the Caymans. I think is one of those two is a doctor in the Caymans. He gets indicted and serves like 20 years because everybody knew who started it. Ran exactly like crypto does, except there was, there was no blockchain there. Liberty Reserve, once Ego gets shut down by the feds, Liberty Reserve pops up. Liberty Reserve, the owners there get indicted. I think that guy is still on the run today. If they ever catch his ass, he's going to get 20 or 40 years too. Is it little wonder that nobody knows who Satoshi Nakamoto is? I personally think, actually, I know that the CIA knows exactly who he is because Satoshi's emails were compromised back in 20, I don't know, 20, somewhere between 2015, 2017. Satoshi let one of his emails expire. Criminal comes in registers that emails, that, that same email address, and he, it gave him access, whoever, I forgot what, who the email provider was, but it gave him access to the old emails that Nakamoto had. And this criminal hacker, I don't call him a hacker, but this criminal then blackmailed Satoshi Nakamoto. And he actually published, you can actually find some of this shit on, uh, it used to be on Reddit, may still be, um, there are some Google searches. If you keep searching, you can find the copies of these emails too. There's a couple emails that were released that have the criminal actually blocked out the, the actual EDU email address of the real Satoshi Nakamoto. So it's little wonder though. And the way I found out about it is Nathaniel Popper. Yeah, Nathaniel Popper over at uh, the New York, New York Times. Yeah, Nathaniel Popper over at the New York Times at that point in time. He was talking to me and he calls me one night. He says, hey, Satoshi's been compromised. And I was like, bullshit. He's like, yeah. So he sends me copies of the email and I just email one of the emails that was listed on there. And I, I got a response. No idea if it was the real Satoshi or not. I like to think it was. But even if it was, the dude really didn't talk about anything at all other than wanting to know how I got that freaking email address. Once I told him that, he cut off all communication with me. But I, you know, I had some chit chats with him for a couple of days. Now, so what I'm what I'm getting at, sorry to, you know, I go off on these tangents every now and then because some of this shit's kind of little nifty stories, you know, little tidbits of information. So Satoshi starts Bitcoin with the blockchain, which is a follow-up from eGold Liberty Reserve. I have no doubt that if Satoshi Nakamoto were identified, other than you know, now the email suggested that the CIA knew who this guy was, who Satoshi Nakamoto was. I have no doubt that if prosecutors knew, knew who he was, that his ass would be indicted. Absolutely, his ass would be indicted, and they would 
convict him because they convicted the ego guy. They ever find the Liberty Reserve guy, they're going to convict his ass too. So with Satoshi Nakamoto, I have no doubt they would convict his ass too. And no, I don't think it's Craig Wright, that guy who keeps saying he's that guy. But anyway, back on track, Ross Ulbricht starts Silk Road. The reason that Bitcoin is going at, I think, 39K today, it may be over 40 today. The reason Bitcoin is going at the price it's going today has nothing to do with the blockchain. It's got everything to do with Ross Ulbricht. He starts Silk Road 1. The only payment he accepts is a drug site. The only payment he accepts is Bitcoin. Now, Silk Road was the first viable real dark web market there. It was the first one that actually worked. All right, now Shadow Crew sets the stage for all of that. Tor allows users to remain anonymous if they know how to use it. Cryptocurrency, and people initially thought that Bitcoin was anonymous. So people were like, yes, we can move massive amounts of value anonymously. So Ross puts all that shit together. Somebody figures out that, hey, we can actually host sites through Tor. Somebody figures that shit out. And Ross puts all that together, comes up with Silk Road. The only payment he takes is crypto. And Silk Road is primarily a drug sales site. And most of the drugs that are sold on the dark web, even today, pot, marijuana. Now, certainly Ross had was selling meth, cocaine, heroin, all this other shit too. Everyone knows Ross got caught. Ross ends up with two life sentences plus 40 years in prison. Well, I've talked about that. I'm going to do another show on that, talking about the Ross Ulbricht case. But that's the next big evolution is Silk Road 1. All right. Ross gets arrested, sentenced to that length of time in prison. After that, Silk Road 2 pops up. Sheep Marketplace pops up. All these different marketplaces pop up. Finally, Evolution Marketplace pops up. Evolution pops up. It was a primarily... Evolution was a, the forums anyway, were fraud-based forums. See, what happens is with Ross, Ross understands that the money is in drugs. Now, certainly you've got a whole shitload of fraudsters, but the money is in drugs. That's why today, if you look at a dark web marketplace, you have fraud and drugs mixed together. Yes, there's, there's money in fraud, but not nearly the money or the traffic that's in drugs. So drugs will actually pay and make you rich if you run a marketplace and the feds don't arrest you, all right? So that's why marketplaces have drugs. So Ross starts that, you've got all these other marketplaces until finally Evolution pops up. Evolution is more of a fraud-based forum, except the Evolution marketplace also has drugs because by this point in time, you cannot separate the two. A marketplace will, if, it, if it's a fraud-based marketplace, you can bet your ass it'll have drug sales too because that's where the money is. So Evolution pops up. The owners of Evolution exit scam. So one thing that you find is because people who know how to properly use Tor, they're anonymous. Bitcoin can be moved very quickly. And it can be made anonymous if you know how to do that by washing it out or today transferring it over to Monero and back, things like that. You know, it can be made anonymous. Well, because you've got that type of system and you're dealing with criminals, 
Yes, you're dealing with criminals, Virginia. Yes, you are. They're crooks. They're crooks. You better watch out or they'll rip you off. Yeah, no shit. They'll rip you off. So the two people who were running Evolution, they exit scam. And boy, is there a story behind that. Because anybody that was around at that point in time, you may remember, I think it was Sheep Marketplace. I'm pretty sure it was Sheep Marketplace. Sheep Marketplace actually started to exit scam. Yes, they did. They started to exit scam. Everybody knew it. Everybody was aware that it was happening. And then something happened. Sheep, the owners of sheep, have a change of heart. They start to send money. They close down the site, but they start to send money back to the actual account holders that were on Sheep Marketplace. Nobody really understood that. And some people at that point started arguing, oh, they were never exit scamming. It was just some problems they were having with the tech and the software. They would never exit scamming. Yes, yes, they were exit scamming. What actually went on is the owners of Evolution, they were about to pull their own damn exit scam. Sheep beats them to the punch. So the owners of Evolution contact Sheep and they're like, hey, your ass ain't doing this stuff. Not only do we know who you are, and we'll tell everybody who you are, because you're not always anonymous. Not only do we know who you are, but tell you what, if you don't exit scam, we'll pay you off. So they paid them a couple million. Yeah, yeah, they paid them a couple million not to exit scam, because when Evolution exit scammed, the owners of Evolution stole about $24 million. Nobody knew who did it until they find one of the owners several months later. Laying on the beach in Cyprus without his head and hands because some of the money on evolution was connected to Ukrainian mobsters who took exception to being stolen from and they wanted to send a message. Which brings us to, well, Brett, how did they identify this guy? Well, it's interesting. Like I said, I read all the comments on my YouTube channel. I've been keeping track of... Uh, my uh, episode of Lex Fridman as well and responding, liking some of those comments too. The only reason I won't respond or like the comment is because you're a dipshit saying some sort of stupid shit, all right? As long as you're not doing that, I'm going to like your comment. I'm going to probably respond to your comment. This guy, though, over on Fridman, he made a comment that uh, over the years, he had started to, he was very good about identifying people that, you know, he didn't need their IP, or maybe sometimes he would have their real IP, but he was very good about identifying the person by simply being aware of what they talked about in the channel or on the platform. Boy, oh boy, boy, you hit the nail on the head there. See, the problem is, is that for law enforcement, a lot of the times law enforcement does not have access to the IP. They don't know where the box is. The criminal, they, how do you identify somebody that's anonymous online? Well, United States speakers are very good about running off at the friggin' mouth. They are. They're very good about posting pictures. You go on Telegram. We'll get to Telegram because that's part of this evolution. But you, you, you look at some of the stuff these people are posting, it becomes very easy to figure out the geographic area that they're in, to figure out where they live, their, their habits, everything else. You just pay attention to what they say. So if you're using a scraper that scrapes all that data, it compiles it for you, and you get a very clear profile of who that particular target is. And guess what? Yes, Virginia, you can identify those guys at that point and go off and give them 20 years. Cha-ching! So again, this is what I find that these people suffer as well from FIS, 
fucking idiot syndrome. There's very little cures for it. Very little cures. I mean, one of the cures is to serve a good 5, 10, 15 years in federal prison. That sometimes suffices to cure people of this horrible, horrible syndrome. Anyway, evolution, exit scams. The interesting thing is, as evolution was exit scamming, they're getting ready to, Alexander Kazaa, he, uh, he was living in, in Thailand at that point in time. He starts a website called Alphabay. Alphabay, by 2017, when the federal government shuts it down, Alphabay is the largest criminal network on the planet. To give you an idea about how these numbers have grown, Shadow Crew gets shut down October 26, 2004. We end with 4,000 members. Fast forward to 2017 when world authorities shut down Alphabay, 240,000 members. Fast forward two more years, 2019, Black Market, another dark web website, shuts down at that point in time, 1.15 million members. Now, Alphabay starts up. They identify, and Alphabay runs for a couple of years, federal authorities identify who the owner of Alphabay is because, again, if you are diligent, if you actually start to look at the way cyber criminals operate, cyber criminals don't start off as experts. No, no, they don't. They learn that shit as they go along. Remember when I committed that first cybercrime with that Beanie Babies? I didn't know shit. But you leave a digital footprint. If that digital footprint can be connected to you, guess what? Oh, yeah, that person who rises to the top of the heap, that Alexander Kazaa, while he is now the top cyber criminal on the planet when he's running Alphabay, he made a lot of mistakes back in the day, mistakes that he did not fix. So they identified this guy, went over to Thailand, arrested his ass, threw him in jail. He immediately hangs himself because he knows he's going to get life in prison. There was no doubt about that. Alpha Bay had been connected to at least three fentanyl overdoses resulted in death, and he was going to be charged for that shit. So he hangs himself, checks out. Now, what happens is no one knew it. Law enforcement knew it. No one knew it at the time, but Alphabay was not the only site that federal authorities had gained control of. Federal authorities had also gained control of Hansa Market. So what happens is Fed shut down Alphabay. Then you start to see all these posts. Well, hey, man. You know, Alphabet shut down. Everyone's moving over to Hansa Market. That's where everyone's meeting. That's where everyone's communicating. So all those 240,000 criminals, they then migrate over to Hansa Market, share their uh, public keys, you know, open up their wallets, share their addresses, do all this other bullshit, set up shop at Hansa Market. Two weeks later, the feds announced, ha, gotcha. We had already taken over Hansa Market too. Cha-ching, motherfuckers. So, Bang, bang. A two-shot, I mean, just two blows right in a row within a couple of weeks. The result of that was so much paranoia that most online fraudsters, most of the dark, the actual legitimate dark web users, not legitimate, but illegal dark web users at that point in time, they got paranoid. They started to think that, hey, there's some exploit that the federal government is using to compromise Dark web users, that's the only way they could have taken over Hansa. It's the only way they could have taken over Alphabet. Well, no, a lot of it has to do with FIS, fucking idiot syndrome. So, 
but it, it hits, it caused so much paranoia that you had a lot of users that says, screw this Tor browser dark web stuff. We're all going to go to prison. So they start to migrate back to the surface web. You see Facebook groups pop up. You see Reddit go crazy with criminal subreddits, talking about drugs, talking about dark web, talking about fraud. Some of the dark web subreddits on Reddit were two, 300,000 members large talking about the stuff that everyone used to talk about on Alphabay and then on Hansa because people were scared to death to go back to the dark web because, hey, that's a big blow. We don't know what the hell's going on. Now, what happens as a result of that, remember we're talking about the evolution of the dark web, which actually we're talking about the evolution of criminal environments, of cyber criminal environments. So what happens is while this is going on, you've got your more experienced cyber criminals the sellers, the users, everything else, they start to understand that, hey, you know, the real flag here is these big marketplaces, these big dark web marketplaces. Basically, that's just a beacon for law enforcement to zero in on. You start to, I mean, it's centralized. Law enforcement knows exactly where to go to, who to look at, everything else. They start to pull data from that, what data they can. They start to read the forums, pull data, start to associate everything else. So you had a lot of criminals start to look at smaller and smaller encrypted messaging channels that they could use. WhatsApp, um, Signal to a degree, very small. Uh, WhatsApp, Wicker, Wicker's a big one today, things like that, okay? And that's where things were. Now, criminals start to migrate back to the dark web. And what happens is Reddit, it took Reddit a while. And let's be honest, there might be a use case for why Reddit took so long to start to ban some of those criminal subreddits. Any idea why? Take your time. Think about it. You got all these, you got all these stupid FIS syndrome people that are sitting there talking about criminal activities, talking about what they're doing. You got law enforcement there. Law enforcement, law enforcement is more than willing and able to send a subpoena to Reddit to say, hey, give me some information on this user. What's the real IP? What do you know about them? Reddit's going to respond to that. Yeah, so there might have been a reason that Reddit was slow to start shutting down those subreddits. Now, this is all, I want you to understand, this is all my, this is all conjecture on my part. But it's educated. It's, it's what I call a swag, a scientific wise-ass guess based on my experiences, both as a top-tier cyber criminal and now on the good guy side of things. It's a scientific wise-ass guess, a swag. So my swag on that says that, hey, you know, there's a benefit to having all these crooks on Reddit talking because we can track these son of a bitches down. We can actually start to associate these guys that are talking on Reddit to their dark web personalities and start to identify some of these guys. Turns out you can do that. Yeah, you can definitely do that. All right. So over time, what happens is, is Reddit starts to shut down a lot of these channels. Like I said, some of these channels were 300,000 members large on Reddit. That's a huge subreddit. Okay. Reddit gets tired of that for a while, starts to shut this stuff down because there were complaints being filed, everything else. About the same time, this, this user on the dark web by the name of Hug Bunter. One word, think of Bug Hunter, except he's transposed the letters into Hug Bunter. 
Hugmutter gets fed up with what Reddit's doing. You know, we can't talk about what we need to talk about on Reddit. And here's the thing, for cybercrime to be successful, you have to have that large communication channel, all right? You have to have that. Criminals have to be able to communicate with each other. They have to be able to share information. New criminals have to be able to know where to go to, who to safely buy from, what good targets are out there. How do I practice good operational security so that I'm not identified, arrested, and sent to prison for 20 years? To have that information, you have to have that large communication channel. Forums, Reddit, Facebook groups. There's a lot of surface web groups as well that talk about this. So you have to have these types of channels where criminals can share and exchange information. Hugminer sees that Reddit's, you know, the Reddit subreddits are short for this world. So he goes off and he starts Dread, D-R-E-A-D, which is basically the Reddit of the dark web. It is a fascinating, fascinating channel. It is the largest communication channel that I have ever seen for cybercrime environments, and they discuss everything there. Now, there's a problem. The problem is, is that Hugbutter is very good about what he does. He can build the shit out of these channels, all right? It looks like it's interesting that uh, the way he codes these channels, the way he codes Dread looks like it's a Java-based channel. He does a lot of tricks that makes it look like Java, but there's no Java there. He's very good about what he's doing. He's also, though, there's a couple of things. The first is that Hugbutter is not an unbiased player. He runs Dread, but dark web users, dark web marketplaces and the top tier criminals there pay him money to advertise or to erase shit. So you've seen several instances where users on Dread will be complaining about a marketplace that's ripping them off or about a user that's ripping them off. And, Dread, and the owners, the moderators, admins, and hugbunner of Dread will oftentimes erase those remarks, ban the user that's saying the stuff that's being said, will hide that channels or marketplaces are exit scamming. So you don't have, it, it's weird that Hugbutter could have been this avenue of real trust on the dark web for criminals. But because of that, because most people, if you're on that channel long enough, you realize that, hey, he's not an unbiased player in this. He has bias. He has prejudice that's going on. When you have that in these channels, that tends to so some mistrust among users at large. At the same time, Hugbutter is also a very paranoid user. While Dread is this horribly large channel platform for cyber criminals to communicate, Hugbutter shuts off the search function at one point so that you can visit Dread, but guess what? You can't search for stuff. Being able to search for stuff is a necessity when we talk about committing cybercrime or talk about where do I go to buy drugs or whatever's going on, you have to be able to search these channels as well. Hugbutter shuts off the search function for months, for months. Now, while all of this is going on, remember I told you the more experienced criminals, they're looking for smaller and smaller encrypted messaging channels. While all of this stuff is going on, while all of these eggs are being laid and plants are grown to maturity and everything else, 
we have Discord pop up. We have Telegram pop up. Discord, I'm going to leave that shit alone. Telegram is what I'm going to talk about because Telegram is really where it's at. All right. So Wicker, outstanding for criminal activity. It is. It's outstanding. For uh, uh, You have to be in the channel to know what the hell is going on. Some of the channels you have to be invited to to get your ass in there. So for criminal activities and discussions, it is a haven for a lot of criminals, okay? Telegram is also a nice haven for a lot of criminals. Today, so Telegram is ran by a a Russian national who is, is known for not working with law enforcement. He is not going to respond to any subpoena request. He doesn't give a damn who's committing fraud on there. The only thing he, he has problems with is he's against child pornography. Anything else pretty much allowed on Telegram, and he doesn't care. Telegram is a very, I mean, there's a lot of legitimate users on Telegram, but there's a whole lot of scams and criminal activity on Telegram. Telegram is the channel, the new wave of cybercrime. It's where most people are going. It's interesting to me. Again, we're talking about the evolution of cybercrime environments. All right. What's really interesting to me is the way that trust works on Telegram compared to the way that trust works on traditional dark web channels. So traditional dark web channels, trust is established over a length of time. Someone's screen name on the dark web becomes their brand. You, I mentioned before, you know by looking at someone's screen name if you can trust that individual. If you can network, learn from that individual, you know what their skills are just by looking at the screen name. That screen name translates across multiple platforms on the dark web as well. A seller that was on Evolution, he translates very well over to Alphabay or whatever the new uh, blackmarket.com or what was one that was shut down the other day. I forgot what the hell the name of the damn thing was. But it translates very well to these other channels as well. So it's a more long-lasting, established persistent trust on the dark web. You know when you're dealing with someone on the dark web, whether you can trust them, whether they are going to rip you off. The rule that I've always went by is that a user that's selling a product or service will continue to do so until it's no longer in their interest, all right? Until law enforcement picks their asses up, until they become in danger or paranoid of being arrested or their product supply runs out. So at that point, you can no longer trust them. But by that point as well, the way the dark web actually operates, you've got so many people in that communication channel that you can you get real-time information. If they're selling a product or service and the product or service starts to go south, like credit card details or something like that, you know almost immediately that there's something wrong with their product. You know usually within a few hours that, hey, something's going on with this seller's wares, don't screw with him. And you go someplace else. You know if a seller dis- disappears on the dark web. So you start to ask questions, were they potentially picked up? What's going on? So you've got that real-time exchange of information that helps even more establish trust on the dark web. So trust is a trust is huge on the dark web. And it's this, it's almost this concrete thing on the dark web. On Telegram, trust is not like that. On Telegram, Trust tends to be established by the rapport of the other users. So you go on Telegram, and Telegram is this 
it's kind of like IRC. It's all encrypted. And you've got different channels and everything else. You can direct message each other. You can have advertisements, all these other things. So trust on Telegram is, is kind of established by the rapport of different users. So who are you getting on Telegram with and bullshitting? See, that's the thing about English-speaking users. I'm the guy that's responsible for basically having this detente with the Ukrainians and the Russian cyber criminals. So at one point, the Ukrainians and the Russian-speaking cyber criminals, they were part of these English cybercrime environments. Shadow Crew, Carter Planet, Carter's Market, Scandinavia, and Carter. Actually, with Carter's Market is really where it starts to schism at that point. But what happens is English speakers share way too much information way too much information in channel. They talk about what movies they're seeing. They talk about the restaurants they're eating at. They, they talk about uh, maybe a concert they saw the night before. They give information that law enforcement can start to pay attention to over time and figure out the geographic area that this person is living in. Sometimes they can figure out the actual house that this person is living in. On Telegram, it's no different. You've got a lot of people that are fucking idiots. You've got a lot of people that, English speakers, that start to share information. They take pictures of receipts. They take pictures of accounts that they're compromising, of orders that they're placing. Think about that. They're taking a picture of an order of a merchant that they are defrauding. How hard is it for law enforcement to track that shit down to figure out where it was sent to and then identify the drop, thereby identifying typically identifying the geographic location of that criminal. So there's a lot of information that English speakers share. Now, that was still going on with Shadow Crew. Make no mistake, it was, there were a lot of English speakers that were sharing a lot of information on Shadow Crew. Russian speakers aren't really like that. Russian-speaking or Ukrainian-speaking cyber criminals weren't like that. They were much more business-based and business-focused. They knew not to shit where they eat. They knew, as I mentioned on a previous episode, not to take some sort of identifying information to the scene of the crime. Don't talk about your personal life. Don't snap a bunch of pictures of the crimes that you're committing. You go on Telegram today, you've got people that are bragging about the crimes. They're oh, I got $100,000 worth of product today. Here, I've taken some pictures of it. Here, I'll take pictures of the, of the order that I placed. Not difficult to start identifying who those criminals are, FIS syndrome. So it's not difficult to do that. And because of that, back in the day when Shadow Crew gets popped and, and you had several different shutdowns almost immediately after that, when Shadow Crew gets popped, Russians were like, oh, these English guys, they're idiots. So even today, now, most Russian cyber criminals or Ukrainian cyber criminals, they do not frequent English-speaking channels because so many English speakers are freaking idiots, all right? And they've got their own Russian-speaking sites that if you're going to deal with these people, you're going to go there. And we are business. We ain't up for chit-chat. We ain't up to hear your bulls about your bullshit life. What do you want? So that's what happens, okay? So Telegram is, the way Telegram establishes trust is through the rapport of different users because English speakers do run off at the mouth a lot. You visit a Telegram channel like AIO Crime or maybe Noir's Luxury Returns or something like that. And you see a lot of talk that ain't got nothing to do with none of the crime that people are coming there to commit and profit and learn about. 
So you see a lot of chit chat interspersed with a lot of criminal activity. It's a weird environment, but because of all that chit chat, that's what tends to establish trust. You start to trust the person who runs the channel. If you trust the person who runs the channel, then that trust from the person who runs the channel starts to bleed down to the other people who are selling or engaging in crime there. Does the person who runs the channel, does he vouch for these other people who are committing crime in the channel? See, it's not really a, a concrete type of trust. It's not a fully established, consistent, persistent type of trust that you see on the dark web. And that opens up Telegram's environment for a lot of scams, not just against legitimate people. I had a guy today that sent me an email saying, hey man, I, I just got ripped off on Telegram, $100 worth of cryptocurrency. Now, a lot of people are gonna say, oh, he just lost $100, that ain't a lot. You know what? If $100 is all you've got, $100 is a hell of a lot. Especially, so it doesn't matter the amount of money that you're losing. You're dealing sometimes with criminals who are in foreign countries that $100 is a whole shitload of money, especially if they're doing it to multiple people at the same time. You rip off 30 people a day for $100, you're making $3,000 a day. Yes, that happens, especially on Telegram. You open up some, this guy, he, uh, he entered in one of these crypto channels and crypto fraud on Telegram is horrible with bots, with scammers, everything else. So he entered in one of these Telegram crypto channels. He thought he could trust the person because the person acted like they knew what they were talking about. The person actually says, hey, you sent me $100. In two days, it turns into 1100 So that promise of, of being able to, to profit that much money and the, 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 the wishes of that victim, you know, the victim needed money. Yeah, I'll put $100 into it. Well, that's $100 you just paid a scammer that you're never going to get back. It's that type of trust that's on Telegram, which opens the door for people being scammed, either you know legitimate users being victimized, legal people being victimized, or fraudsters being victimized. It happens just as often with fraudsters. You got somebody that's selling you know, compromised accounts to merchants, retailers, email, whatever. They're selling that. They're selling tools. They're selling uh, refund services, whatever they're selling. You've got legitimate sellers of those wares on there, but you've also got people who are ripping you off, even on the channels that can be trusted, like Noir, like AIO. Even on those channels, you've got scammers that pop in there all the time and they'll direct message somebody or they'll, they'll advertise in channels. Somebody will respond, immediately get ripped off for a couple hundred bucks or 50 bucks or whatever it be. But you've got scammers that are on there all the time. So while you know it may not seem like, oh, they just made 50 bucks. Well, if they make 50 bucks off 100 users a day, that's, pretty, that's a pretty damn good living. So trust is interesting and not well-defined on Telegram. I will tell you this, that if they can figure out the trust mechanism on Telegram, if they can figure that out, Telegram will be one hell of a beast, but they have to figure out how to establish trust in that channel, which is a problem for them. It's a huge problem for them. Telegram right now is, is on the cutting edge of cybercrime. We're talking about the evolution of cybercrime environments. I'm calling it the evolution of the dark web, but it's evolution of cybercrime environments. That's where things are today is with Telegram. You've got more and more users are migrating away from the dark web because the dark web is hard to access. It's questionable. It's easy to, if you don't know how to properly use Tor, it's easy to be compromised and identified. Meanwhile, you've got sites like, or services or apps like Telegram, Discord that are on the surface web. 
easy enough to run it on your phone. It's encrypted all the way through, especially with Telegram. It's a Russian runs it who's very unfriendly to law enforcement. He's not going to give any information up at the same time. So those users have a new way to remain anonymous. That's kind of foolproof, as long as they're not suffering from FIS, fucking idiot syndrome, and sharing too much information, which is what a lot of English-speaking cyber criminals do, and they're identified like that. So that's what goes on. That's the that's that's basically where we are today when we're talking about cybercrime, the evolution of cybercrime environments. The other thing, and I'll do another show on that, are marketplaces like Genesis Marketplace. So I know I'm probably running over long right now, so but I do want to mention this this, this evolution. As time has went on, cybercrime, these environments have evolved to the point where when I was committing cybercrime, the sophistication used to be in the criminal, the individual, because back then you had to know every single dynamic of online crime. You had to know how to do man in the middle attacks. You had to know how to do phishing schemes, how to do social engineering. You had to know how to use the tools, how to run drop addresses, how to do credit card fraud. You had to know all these different types of aspects of online crime. Cybercrime has the platform of cybercrime has continued to become more efficient and evolve today where the sophistication is no longer in the criminal. The sophistication now is in the platform. The criminals, a lot of these criminals are simply plug and play. Anybody today can come into a cyber that wants to be an aspiring cyber criminal can come in and almost immediately start making money. They can buy tutorials for five to ten dollars. They can take live instruction classes that run anywhere from three hundred dollars up to thirty five hundred dollars. Like Noir teaches refunding for thirty five hundred dollars plus. And if you want to be, make gain entry to his upper tier channels, he charges another five to seven thousand dollars on that. And it, it's worth it because you're going to profit a lot of money at the end of the day. You're going to be able to victimize a lot of different individuals and companies by taking that, that instruction. So you take live instruction classes. A lot of times you don't even have to do that. You can simply go in the channel, whether it be on the dark web, on Telegram, on Discord, on a Facebook marketplace, even on Reddit today, or on some of these surface web forums, you can simply ask questions. So you can go to cracking.com or Nold or someplace like that. You can simply ask a question and somebody will respond to you. They will help you commit that specific type of crime. So the, the platform has evolved to where the criminals really don't need to know anything to be able to profit. Off-the-shelf tools and products establish these things. You don't have to know how to spoof a phone number. You can go to Phone Gangster. You don't have to know how to run a VM box because VM boxes are already built legitimately for people to use. Privacy, privacy browsers are the same thing. It continues to evolve and become easier to do these things as criminals continue to collaborate and work together. One of the big, one of the big things right now are sites like Genesis Marketplace. So traditionally, the way an account takeover used to work, a criminal would go on the dark web, one of these dark web marketplaces. He would buy your login details for your financial institution or your fintech service or what have you. He would buy those login details. He would get, you know, if I were taking over a fintech like PayPal, if I were taking over that, I would spend maybe $40 for your PayPal login. I'd get your login credentials. I'd get some of your personal information. 
From there, though, I have to go and I have to worry about the browser fingerprint. I have to worry about I don't have the I don't have the correct fingerprint. I don't have the I don't have your cookie. I don't have um, I have to worry about the IP range. I probably have to get some KBA, some knowledge based authentication stuff. So I need to get your background check. There's a whole host of things that I have to get in order to try to make that account takeover successful. And there's a lot of points of failure on that potential ATO, that potential account takeover. Genesis solves a lot of that. Genesis is a bot network. So you go on Genesis, they've got 400,000 bots that actually sits on these different financial institutions, websites, merchants, websites, all these different types of sites, you know, crypto websites, everything else. Bot sits on the site, captures the login credentials, the correct credentials, captures the correct cookie, captures the correct browser fingerprint, captures everything that a criminal needs to take over the account. As I said before, though, cybercrime has become more, more sophisticated, so, this is the, so the sophistication is in the platform, not the criminal. Criminals don't need to know anything. So a criminal who buys one of these bots, the bots range anywhere from $6 up to $375 each. Criminal who buys one of these bots, he doesn't need to know how to use the cookie, the stolen cookie. He doesn't need to know how to use the how to input the browser fingerprint, so he comes off as the user. He doesn't need to need to know how to use the credentials either, because Genesis also has a browser plugin or a browser itself that plugs all that shit in for the criminal, so that now a criminal can go. He he compromises. He gets he, he sits on a bank's website, captures all this data through the through the bot. As soon as he gets the data, he goes back in and signs in as you. He's got the correct cookie. He's got the correct browser fingerprint. He's got the credentials. The only thing he sometimes has to, has to worry about is the IP range, which that becomes an issue because the largest, most the, the, the best IP, the best SOX 5 proxy provider shut down recently. Lux SOX have been the top proxy provider for cyber criminals for a few years. They shut down recently, which has left a lot of criminals scurrying, trying to find a good proxy provider. Becomes a problem. But what happens with, with Genesis, think of it like this. So if you've got multi-factor authentication with your bank, if a Genesis bot is sitting on that and captures the cookie, captures the correct token and everything else, sells it to some a criminal like I used to be, You've just signed out of your bank account. I then get that, that session data. I can come back in because I've got the correct token. I can come back in. It bypasses multi-factor authentication. Ah, so now I'm in your bank account. I look like I'm you. What can I do? I can do pretty much any damn thing I want to. I can change, update the phone number that's on file. I can uh, send out Zelle payments. I can do all these other different types of things in your account or in your FinTech service. I can send people money. I can buy things with it. I can change account data. I can request new cards. I can do all these other things because of Genesis. Genesis is going to change, and it has already changed a, what, the way a lot of account takeovers have been looking and operating. A lot of the different marketplaces are now copying the Genesis model as well. It's going to continue to go like that. So the evolution of cybercrime environments is today's topic. And you see what I'm, what I'm getting at is that things become much more efficient. Things are becoming much easier for criminals to do to make criminals more successful. You've got the dark web, 
dark web is kind of taking second base these days because you've got these other types of apps and services that are available now that are easier to use, that are easier to remain anonymous with, that are easier to communicate. And you've got many more players coming into those environments because of that. When you've got many more players coming into those environments, you've got more information and data exchange. You've got more ideas that are coming in, more criminal ideas, more, more targets that are being talked about, much more success on the criminal side of things. So that's the evolution of the dark web. At the same time, how are criminals being identified? A lot of criminals talk too much. A lot of criminals start to share information. A lot of criminals are so desperate to make money that they fuck up. So that's a lot of the ways that, that a lot of this stuff is done. A lot at the same time, a lot of these crimes are social engineering type crimes, or they have an element of social engineering. I've said before that without social engineering, cybercrime fails. That's absolutely true. When you're a social engineer or when you're dealing with a seller, guess what? If somebody's selling, if you know Genesis gets shut down, feds identify who it is and they capture the box, capture all the data of all the people who've been buying Genesis products, Probably a lot of real IPs are going to be there. You can start to identify who those users are, start to identify the crimes that they've committed, catch them from there. Yeah, so it's a cat and mouse game, cat and mouse game, but the evolution of cybercrime continues and it will continue. It absolutely will. We'll talk more about what the future of cybercrime looks like. I've given a picture of what you, know, you should be able to paint it out from here. You should be. You take stimulus fraud, add into that all the uh, the, the, the numbers of cyber criminals that are growing, that have been growing over the past 20 years, the way these numbers have exploded, the ease of the platform where it does it for you, the sharing of exchanging of information, you continue to see cybercrime grow and explode. At the same time, understand that there are roughly 37,000 FBI agents, 56 field offices across the United States. How many actual cybercrime officers or cybercrime agents, field agents are there? You really don't want to know. You really don't want to know because it's not nearly enough. I actually told the, uh, the number in a couple of presentations and I was called a liar because the number is that small. So the, the, there's not enough law enforcement to do it. Private sector has to pick up the, the slack. The, unfortunately, a lot of private sector, a lot of, a lot of companies don't want or don't really consider cybersecurity until they've been hit. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Then, of course, the problem with a lot of this threat, a lot of the threat landscape is the statistic is 90% of every single exploit, every single attack uses known exploits. 90% of every single attack uses known exploits. Some other stats to scare you to death, 41% of every single router on the planet has the default password. That's not even talking about IoT devices. 56% of companies have experienced a breach because of third parties. Of those third parties, none of them are ever vetted. Most companies have no idea how many third parties are accessing their system. Your system is only as strong as the weakest device, which accesses it. 80% of most everyone on the planet uses the same or similar passwords across multiple websites. All that together means that a lot of cybercrime is easy to commit, means that cybercrime is going to continue to grow and explode. So now that I've scared you to death, let's sign off for the day. Ha! Sweet dreams. I am Brett Johnson. What do we say as we end the show? Stay safe. It becomes difficult sometimes. Stay secure. It becomes even more difficult sometimes. And stay vigilant. But you can't do these things. Proper security is not romantic. 
Proper security is not sophisticated. Proper security is simply doing the nuts and bolts of what needs to be done. So stay safe, stay secure, stay vigilant. More importantly, this is the Brett Johnson Show. At the end of the day, what do we say? Just do the right damn thing. I'm Brett Johnson. Thank you for watching. Until next time.